0: He doubted we'd ever see it, but here it is—the return to glory. McDavid stops up, what a move! Shoots, scores. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Outsiders. This is podcast number eleven. It's Bryn Griffiths along with Robin Brownley. Robin, how you doing?
1: Well, I'm terrific, Bryn, although I will interject with, now, today is election day in Canada. By the time some people listen to it, it will have come and gone. We will have a new leader. I've got to say, I'm a little bit down. Now that the election is is coming and soon will be gone, I'm going to miss people telling me, What I should think, (laughs) who I should vote for, and that I'm an absolute effing moron for uh, voting for who I did. You know, I'm going to miss that.
0: You you know, what I would like to have more on Facebook is I'd like to see people's lunches again. Remember when people (laughs) were posting pictures of their lunch or their dinner and everyone went, oh my God, or on Twitter or whatever. No, I'm with you 100%. It's just It'll be uh, nice to have it all over with, and then we can kvetch about where we're going, the direction that the next government, be it a new one or be it the current one, uh, we'll see what happens. It it really is something, though. I mean, we're here to
1: talk sports, but every once in a while, we take a small, uh, circuitous route uh, to get to it. I know a lot of people out there, and a lot of them, are, to me, are very smart, very good people, but it's like a bunch of them lose their minds when it comes to politics. And I'm not talking about who they support. It's just that they become unreasonable and angry and demeaning and demanding. And how the hell can you think that? How can you feel that? How can you support this? You should support that. You know what? Like at dinner with the relatives, social media... (laughs) is not the best place to get all over somebody for their politics. Because you know what? Right or wrong, people are going to vote for who they want to vote for, and you can't convince them otherwise. Uh They agree with you. Some don't. It's all good. But it's a, it's a different time. And frankly, I'm happy that it will end today when the polls close, and then we can get on with things for better or worse. So... That's my good morning. One
0: word for me, toxic. That's the only word I can use to describe social media over the last, I'll say the last six months, not just the last month. Anyway, you're right. Let's move on. I was i was entertained. I'm not so sure you were, but watching the Winnipeg Jets and the Edmonton Oilers square off, the goaltending was, the both goaltenders were absolutely marvelous in that hockey game, but it ends up a one nothing victory for the Jets in a shootout. You did not like the game? You know what? I thought it was a little bit disjointed. I didn't dislike the game. I
1: loved the overtime. And the chances that Connor McDavid and Leon Drysidel had, just them, uh, usually that game is a uh, game-set match when they break in like that. They uh, didn't manage to bury one last night, and in fact, on one of the plays, Leon Dryside looked completely discombobulated. There's a word for you. Yeah. Um, Just couldn't get a stick on the puck. I don't know if he was sucking air or uh, was just in an awkward position, but usually when those guys turn up ice on the two-on-one, you're waiting for the game to end, but uh, it didn't. Uh, Entertaining game. Uh, probably a a just result,
0: and Mike Smith was very good again, and that's been an eye-opener. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because going into this season, one of the major concerns that we and anybody who's watching uh, had about the Edmonton Oilers was goaltending. We've seen nothing but soft goaltending here over the last five years. So this time around, you come in with both Koskinen and Smith, And people were very leery. And all they've done so far, early part of the season, is provide the Edmonton Oilers with solid, solid net minding. Yeah, and and here's the thing. And and I was one of those people who,
1: to this point, has been uh, completely wrong about the goaltending. Now, I didn't say ever say or write there was no chance they were good enough. But I had my doubts. But now, with the benefit of hindsight... I look at Miko Koskinen. When was he at his worst last year? When they ran him hard, yeah. Uh, in the second half, he played way too much. Look at Mike Smith down in Calgary. When was he at his best? Well, he was at his best in the playoffs. And I'll tell you something. The reason I, I was mad at myself for not picking up on that was, I've seen the wheels fall off a goaltender. Where he couldn't play at the NHL level anymore. It happened here in Edmonton with Tommy Sallow. Yes. Tommy Sallow was a very good goaltender for a long time, but when he lost it, he lost it and there was no coming back. Mike Smith struggled during the regular season last year, and I had my doubts that he could come back. He's 37 years old, but here's the thing, and people have mentioned it already. He came back in the in the latter part of the regular season, and he was far better in the playoffs. So it wasn't a case of him losing it. It was a case of a really crappy first half, and then he picked it up. If Dave Tippett is smart enough, and I think he is, to keep platooning these guys, you know, I'm not big on tandems. They often don't work. But if Miko Koskinen is better playing 40 to 45 games, then play him 40 to 45 games. You don't have to have a clear-cut number one. He's got his salary. It's money spent. It doesn't matter if Smith comes in on a better contract. If they're both 41-game goaltenders and it works as it has so far,
0: stick with it. Tommy Sala was never the same after that Olympic goal. No. Never, He never came back from that, So, and Tommy was an interesting dude. I liked him. I was in the public relations uh, department with the Edmonton Oilers when he was there, and Tommy, uh, quick Tommy story, I actually asked him if all those names of all those products at Ikea were correct, and he (laughs) dryly said, no, no, no. I said, so Billy's not a bookcase? I can't get a Skvorsnik anywhere? He just started to laugh. But anyway, uh, let's talk about one other goaltender, Cam Talbot. Watch the game. The Flames winning. Winning. I said winning in Anaheim. Cam Talbot, I thought, was absolutely sensational in that game. Now, he's got, he had a pretty good track record against Anaheim when he was with the Edmonton Oilers. He used to give Anaheim a lot of trouble. Well, look at the playoff run, for example. But he was great for the Flames last night at a time where they were coming off a horrible loss on Saturday night against the – Los Angeles Kings at Staples Center. They were just so awful in that game. That was a pretty good rebound for them. But once again, uh, in this particular case, Cam Talbot was uh, a big reason for that turnaround. And very quickly, one other note on the Edmonton Oilers. Power play and penalty kill. Where do you want to start with that? The penalty kill has been absolutely lights out, spectacular. They're unbeaten yet on the road going into their next game against Minnesota.
1: Well, I tell you what, uh, the PK and the power play, are not going to stay where they are now in terms of percentage, but it doesn't matter. It's like the wins and losses. The points are in the bank. If they drop off a little bit on both, which they will, they still have a chance to be very good. And, you know, the structure is one thing, but having the right people and plugging the right players into that structure is a key. And so far they've been very good, and the goaltending is a big part of that. It always is, but... Yeah, I mean, Tippett is on them, win or lose. That's the thing. It's not just a a look the other way after you win and then complain about it after a loss. If he doesn't like the structure and the process that he sees, he mentions it. And that happened after the 52 shots allowed against Philly. They won the hockey game, but he didn't like it. And... That
0: kind of even hand over the long term, I think, is probably going to pay dividends. Keeps him accountable, that's for sure. And finally, Elliot Friedman kind of started off uh, a bit of a firestorm last week when he suggested that Taylor Hall could be on the move from the New Jersey Devils if the Devils continued to play poorly. So one of the things that he mentioned was that he suggested that Edmonton might be more in the talks than not that it would not surprise him if he showed up or reappeared in Edmonton. Now, your thoughts on that? I, I, To me, I just don't see it right now. But if Elliot Friedman's saying it, and I trust Elliot, I've known him for a very, very long time. If he's saying it, he's hearing something from somebody. I'll tell you what. I won't say
1: never with Taylor Hall. To me, the biggest problem is going to be the money. What we've got to understand, and you don't have to go back that far. You just go back to when he was moved. The GM and the coach have changed. That There's been time for any bad feelings, and there were bad feelings to dissipate. And there were bad feelings because Taylor Hall was happy here. Taylor Hall, warts and all, young player. Uh, was he out having a good time sometimes? People would talk about that often. You know what? I don't really care. I spent years traveling with the team. I didn't follow them on their own time. Taylor Hall is an ex-most valuable player in this league. He is still a young player. And to me, he's still a top top 20 forward in the league, somewhere in that bracket. Yeah. If he wants to come back, and he'll only want to come back if the Devils have no hope of contending – and the Oilers look like a contender, and it's early, but now they do. If these are teams headed opposite directions, Taylor Hall, uh, I don't see why you would have any uh, thought not to come. It's going to come down to money, and it's going to come down to two scenarios. Is this a trade during the year, and you better be damn sure you can re-sign him if you're going to trade for him and give up assets, or is it a UFA? And if Taylor Hall's going to command 10 million bucks a season. And I think he probably will unless he has an absolutely terrible season. The Oilers have to find a way to make that work. We've seen teams hamstrung with too many guys making double digits in salary. Uh, thankfully, Leon Dreisaitl isn't a double digit guy. Great contract. Yes, it is. But you've got to make the money work, especially when you got Darnell's Darnell nurse coming, yes. coming up. So I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a. It's lazy speculation. I don't think it's a probability. I think it's a possibility. Is it
0: stronger than that? Well, we'll see. Okay, before we uh, get to our next guest, uh, let's talk a little bit about him, Stu Grimson, tough bugger, man. He was he was a hard player, but his route to the NHL is um, is a fascinating one, and we'll get to that coming up in a little bit here. But anytime he was on the ice, he had to be aware. And he had a long, lengthy career in the National Hockey League, started his uh, junior career with the Regina Pats back in the day in the early 80s and worked his way up. You and I were just talking about uh, uh, the, uh, the, you know, when he came through the Western Hockey League with the Pats, you were in New Westminster, and we were talking about uh, Cliff Ronning and and how the uh, Bruins had some real tough guys. And no wonder Cliff Ronning had a lot of space. Well, Cliff
1: Ronning had the 197 points the one season, and that stood as a record for the Western Hockey League until Rob Brown uh, came along and had 212. And as uh, luck would have it, I was there for that season too because I'd moved to the Kamloops Daily News at that point. But back in Ronning's 197-point year, they had some tough players uh, there. Uh, Cliff would sometimes play; would often play with Brian Noonan, who went to the New York Rangers as a line mate, and Craig Barube. Todd Ewan was also <laughs> on that Bruins team. Well, the Bruins always had a, a tough team. That was their thing, right? G- Grimson now, because of the schedule and the league setup, wasn't in there all that often. But he was one of those players. He came in. And he played his game no matter what. I can go back to a totally different generation and talk about a guy uh, from Edmonton here with the Oil Kings named Harold Sneps who go into Queens Park Arena where the Bruins were an absolute donkey show with Ernie McLean where they had a handful of guys over 300 pims each year. And guys like Sneps would come in and they didn't give a crap. They would play tough and they would do their job. Grimson was one of those guys, but as he says in the book, he was a little bit of a reluctant warrior at points, and that's very interesting, because make no mistake, if you're a goal scorer and you become not good at it, maybe you get demoted a line or two. If you're a checker and you're, you have a tough stretch, maybe you get pulled off the PK, if you're a tough guy, and you're not good at it, you're done.
0: You, you get hurt. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a tough gig. You're going to bring up the the Dave Brown fight. I'm sure you're going to bring that up. Well, we'll talk to we'll
1: talk okay. to Stu about that. But most people remember, you know, the rematch of Stu Grimson, Dave Brown. Grimson got the better of Brown in the first fight, and there was another one. And Brown, he said there would be. Yeah. And he filled him in. There was and, a reckoning. And Stu was a young guy at that time, and I thought it could have knocked his career off the rails because, let's face it, if your job is to drop your gloves and fight, and that's an era that's now almost completely out of the game, but in that era, that was Stu's job. Let's not mess around. He wasn't there to be an energy guy. He was there to kick ass and to fight, and that's what he did. Well, you get filled in doing your job as a young player, a lot of guys would say, just a sec, do I want to do this? Can I do this? It was quite the opposite reaction from Stu, and we'll ask him about that. Um, that made him dig in his heels and and, and uh, go after that role and carry out that role, which is so tough, uh, it didn't back him off a bit.
0: You're listening to The Outsiders, the podcast, Bryn Griffiths, along with Robin Brownley. And once again, if you would like to get a hold of us, you're more than welcome to do that. We would encourage you to drop us an email at Mightymouth at and also make sure you tell your friends and subscribe or RSS to our feed on your favorite ear candy site, whichever one you go to. Okay, guess what? Yep. Stu Grimson up next.
1: Fresh air. And fun. Experience it all this summer in a new RV from Carefree RV. Trade up to the perfect bunk model from reputable brands like Winnebago and Forest River. So many floor plans and payments starting at just $53 bi weekly. Plus, one free year of Coach Net warranty on all RVs. Carefree RV opens seven days a week in Edmonton and LaDuke. Online carefreerv.ca. Carefree.
0: Hey, Stu, how you doing? I'm fantastic. How's everybody? We are doing just great. So you got this new book out. What is it all about? Well, it's about a lot of things. It's about a lot of things. Uh, you know, I played a good long while in
2: the NHL. It's uh, it's chock full of stories about that. I, you know, I learned a lot in the process. And, and here's, here's one of the, I guess, key themes in the book. You know, I took a rather unconventional route to get to the NHL. I played somewhat of a unique, perhaps unconventional role while I was there. And I've done some things that, you know, not a lot of NHL players do once they leave the game. You know, I've, I guess I've kind of taken a, a different path there as well. So between, you know, those those three elements... Um, you got 300 pages worth of material.
1: <laughs> it is unconventional, Stu. I tell you, I was uh, in New Westminster covering the New Westminster Bruins when you were in Regina. Uh, I also uh, saw you in the NHL a lot. I, I was the beat guy with the Oilers for many years. But you talk about unconventional. I When you got to the University of Manitoba, knowing how you played in the Western Hockey League, I thought, what the hell is Stu Grimson doing at the U of Manitoba? How did that unfold exactly?
2: Yeah, well, and that goes again with the, the unconventional path. I are a lot of players that, you know, play major, junior, and ultimately make it to the NHL, but, you know, take a circuitous route through the uh, through Canadian college hockey. And, and really, for me, it was a critical stop. I was at a stage in my amateur career where I was at a point where, you know, playing the role of enforcer was something that just it didn't sit well with me. It's not an easy role to play. It, it, it requires, you know, I suppose a, a very uh, specific kind of mindset and it took you know it took a while for me to kind of develop that mindset so the ability to go back and play a couple of years of college hockey gave me a reason to kind of pause refine a love for the game and then ultimately you know uh, get to a place where I was I was prepared to kind of roll up my sleeves and take a, a shot in earnest at the whole notion of of playing pro hockey so it was a different stop, I recognize, but it was a critical stop for me.
0: Stu, the University of Manitoba's got a pre- very, very strong history in hockey, but but there's the atmosphere. There's the atmosphere of being on campus where it, you can shut out a lot of the the normal NHL stuff or the normal junior stuff. Did you find that? And and who was coaching you when you were there?
2: Uh, I I had the you know the great pleasure the privilege of, of, playing for a guy that, you know, I had played for a lot of great coaches over the course of my amateur and pro career. But Wayne Fleming was my coach while a member of the university of Bisons. and I would rank Wayne among those that, um, I mean, to me, he was a great teacher of the game. I probably learned more from Wayne on a, you know, a, de- a pure developmental basis about the game, a lot of the subtle things, a lot of the nuanced and, and detail-oriented things, I learned a lot of those things from Wayne, and I, I, it was just a it was a phenomenal experience for me, and uh, very great grateful to have had it, very grateful to have known Wayne while he was alive.
1: You know, I, I look at that Manitoba stint, Stu, and I, I just find it interesting. Uh, uh, You probably remember there was a a tough kid out of the dub who went to the uh, U of A. He wasn't strictly an enforcer, but Steve Young, he fought a lot. And it was the same thing for him. You can't fight in college hockey. So how is he going to play there? You spent the two years at University of Manitoba. You played for a terrific coach. Uh, Fleming was uh, certainly a great coach. But how does that How did that reset you to decide that you did want to go to the National Hockey League? Because it seems seems in many ways a world away.
2: Yeah, I'm sure for for many folks it does. And even today, I I think that, you know, the delta between... you know the 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 NHL, uh, the pinnacle of of a pro career, and Canadian college hockey. That that's still a pretty good delta even today. Mm-hmm. Not an easy step to get from one to the other. So, but for me, it really was. You know, it, I, when I when I left uh, my first opportunity to turn pro with the Calgary Flames, when I kind of walked away from that opportunity. You know, there was no other option for me. And to be honest, I didn't really have, well, this this kind of a thought process going on in my head. Well, what will bring me the best opportunity to, to return to pro hockey? What's the best, you know, a stopgap or, or, or fail-safe to, to go now, best mm-hmm. option for me, in order to return to pro hockey? For me, it was just, I want to get a start on my education here's a team that has shown interest the University of Manitoba and a college that has shown interest. And, uh, I will simply, uh, I will simply go there because they seem like a great school. They seem like a great program. So, you know, it, it, it all came together, uh, you know, in retrospect, like, you know, there was, there was some great master plan in terms of my, my development as both a person and as uh, a, a hockey player. But, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. It, it worked out fantastic. And, and Wayne Fleming and in the, in the great players that I played with while a member of the University of Manitoba, they, they had a great deal to do with that.
0: I, I have to ask you about one thing, and that is the fact that you were not drafted by the Calgary Flames first. You were drafted by the Detroit Red Wings in, I think it was, 83. There was a two-year gap between that and the Flames re-selecting you in the seventh round. What happened in that two-year period? Yeah. So,
2: and this this is a mechanism that kind of uh, exists in the game even today. So, when you're drafted, when you're selected in the underage draft, the club that drafts you has a a calendar year within which to make a a qualifying offer to retain your rights. Now, you don't have to sign a contract necessarily, but that team has to extend you an offer at a minimum just to keep um, just just to retain. Uh, you as their property Mm -hmm. Detroit for whatever reason um you know didn't really value me as a prospect they were pretty deep in that kind of big burly enforcer type uh winger category and they essentially chose to to walk away at that point so and not not tender me uh a qualifying offer so when that happens the the player myself in this in this example Essentially, becomes a free agent. You re-enter the draft, and that's what happened after my second year of junior, heading into my third year of junior. My third year, I had a really strong year. Got yes. a lot more playing time. Was starting to kind of settle into, you know. Certainly, the physical component was always something that I knew would be, you know, at the core of my skill set. But you know, I was able to play and and make a contribution in some other ways. Ended up having a fifty-plus point season. Scored. I think, in the neighborhood of, of 25 goals, and, and and that got the Calgary Flames' attention. They took a crack at me, and it was ultimately the Flames with whom I turned pro.
1: Yeah. Stu, now let's get to the core of that skill set you talk about. One thing that jumps out for me, you're a young guy. You know your job. You're a hammer in this league. You get filled in by Dave Brown. Huh. Now, as a young guy, that might tend to have some guys say, whoa, if this is what it's going to be like, this isn't for me. Just the timing of it early in your career, uh, it's a tough job. Everybody knows that. Yet you say it actually got you to dig in and say, I can do this job, Uh, I can make a career of this. Tell me how your mind was working uh, to come to that conclusion.
2: Right. Well, put a little context around it. It's a great question, but this comes up in, You know the span of kind of a home-and-home series with the Edmonton Oilers. I'm a member of the Calgary Flames, Uh and I know if I'm going to stick in the NHL, the path to the NHL runs right through Dave Brown. He was my kind of contemporary on the Edmonton Oilers roster. If you recall, on the front end of that Mm home-and-home, I showed really well against Dave Brown, probably got the better of him, and it wasn't until the back end of that home-and-home whereby – um, you know, Brownie and I went for, we kind of had our second set too, and he really got the better of me in that one. Yep. So, you know, there were several things kind of going on in for me personally, and it was one, I demonstrated to myself, you know, I think I've, I've got what it takes to, to play and to survive at this, at this level. I've shown well against one of the best in the business. And then number two, and this is kind of, you know, this goes back to this, to the reluctant warrior kind of component that you know is is a uh, an important theme through the book the role of enforcer was one that you know i was still having a a hard time embracing it wasn't so much the you know the 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 physical element of it it was more the mental element it was the preparation for you know a big bout like this it was the anticipation of all that it was the 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 fear of perhaps losing being humiliated in mm. front of your teammates in front of 20,000 fans but in this in this bad loss, and it really was a bad loss, there's no other way to describe how bad Brownie beat me, I was able to kind of, you know, essentially have a conversation with myself that went along the following lines. It was really me saying, if, if I can survive this, if I can kind of yank myself up by my bootstraps, having sustained one of the worst losses uh, an enforcer type can have, then I really have nothing left to fear. So... It actually proved to be, and this is kind of counterintuitive for a lot of folks, it actually proved to be this loss and the ability to bounce back from it, it proved to be a very liberating experience for me at the end of the day.
0: The nickname, the Grim Reaper, where did that come from? You know, it
2: goes all the way back to my first year of junior. I played for my general manager back then was Bob Strum. It was Strummer that, <laughs> that ultimately uh, was there, for, you know, around the time that I first made the Regina Pats. And I guess, you know, Strummer tra- tagged me with that that, uh, that nickname. <laughs> and, you know, I, I suppose it was kind of prominent while while I played major junior in that area. It kind of flows from, you know, I guess the, the first syllable of my last name and the fact that I beg and played kind of an aggressive physical role. And, you know, the interesting thing about it was it didn't really, it didn't really receive the attention, the notoriety it ultimately got until I arrived in Chicago and kind of became an everyday NHLer as a Blackhawk. But Blackhawks fans, especially back then in the old building, they were diehard, a lunch pail crew. And they love somebody that was prepared to shake off his gloves, you know, in kind of uh, a regular way in in much the way that I was back in the, uh, you know, the days of some of those great rivalries with Chicago and Detroit and St. Louis and Toronto and Minnesota and all those teams of the old Norris division.
0: All the reasons I bring so it up... Like
2: to- or as we like to refer to it, the, the Chuck Norris
0: division. <laughs> the, <laughs> I bring it up because everybody I've talked to, I said, hey, we, got, you know, we have Stu Grimson coming up uh, on the podcast here in October, and everyone goes, ah, the Grim Reaper. And, and it made me laugh. But then I thought to myself, did, were you okay with that? And Strummer was a colorful character uh, himself. But, but th- as you went through the NHL, did that really bother you, having that nickname, or was it just part of the package?
2: I think it was just part of the package. It never really bothered me uh, either way, you know. And, and looking back, I, I suppose to some degree. And you know, I'm not the one to answer this question, but you know, it, the nickname, com, you know, combined with the role that I played, it probably get me got me a little bit of extra space, and 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 maybe you know, uh, short circuited a a few up and coming NHL heavyweights from you know from kind of tangling. I don't know at the end of the day, but. Um, it's, it's something that, you know, it's, it's never never really, it's not something I've really ever embraced or promoted, yeah. uh, up until, up until I decided to write a book. And then <laughs> at that point, I, I suppose I am, I'll, I'll come clean. I suppose I am cashing in at it, in on it finally, after all these years, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, some two decades removed from the game.
1: Well, nothing wrong with that, Stu. It's interesting, you know, uh, the title, the grim reaper, the life and career of a reluctant warrior uh i know a guy pretty well who's i guess in some ways much the same as you and and your paths intersected a lot in the national hockey league uh george larac also wrote a book um i remember that last fight you had with him but more than that Stu. I remember sitting on the bus. It was late at night. We'd just landed somewhere. And I don't remember if George called you or you called him, but there was a conversation uh, sometime after that fight you had with him where you were struggling and you didn't know if or when you'd get back. And you guys talked for quite a while when he was on that in that row behind me on the bus, what was that conversation about? And what would you tell people who say, "Why are these guys talking on the phone? They just beat the shit out of each other on the ice."
2: <laughs> yeah, and that's something that I think is often overlooked and maybe underappreciated by the casual observer, the the the, the fan that would follow our game. You know, they're uh, as fierce as we are on the ice. Uh, there really is no personal animosity between one fighter and another, generally speaking. So, you know, for a guy like George, and I remember it quite clearly, he, he's the one that initiated that call to me. And I'm sure by this point, George kind of suspected that, you know, the blow I suffered in the last time we fought Mm -hmm. was the one that may have contributed. It was a blow like any other, but for me, it was more like the straw that broke the camel's back. It was, this one in a you know a long long series of different blows that ultimately led to to my inability to return to the game. But I'm sure George uh, caught wind of that uh, in some way. And I've been in that situation myself. I got into a fight with Basil McRae. Uh, earlier in my career, Basil had a spiral fracture in the uh, femur, uh, if that's the large bone
3: mm-hmm.
2: e- in the the upper leg region. And I reached out to Basil because I just I was concerned that uh, you know this this may have ended it for him. I know that the call George made to me came from a very similar place. We all do what we do while we're on the ice, but the last thing we want to do is see anybody on the other side get hurt and sustain a career ending injury. So George reached out out of a uh, concern for all that. And he was extremely gracious just in, you know, kind of conveying his, his sentiments and, and hoping that I would, uh, that I would want, you know, heal and heal completely. And then two if my body permitted it that I, that I get back to playing. So a very gracious call, a very thoughtful gesture at that moment in time by George. No question.
0: Well, Robin and I both know George quite well and he's always on his phone. So it's good that he gave you a shout, but I got to ask you kind of a a bit of an offbeat question who gave you the most trouble on the opposition. And it's a two parter who created the most problems for you on your own teams. (laughs) (laughs) That's a
2: good question. That's a good question. Uh, I'll answer the second question first. The latter question first. You know, there are lots and lots of guys that uh, that made my job a little more challenging, just in terms of um, you know keeping keeping me and my other teammates on our toes. Saren Flurry was <laughs> a teammate in in Salt Lake City for about half a year. He was terrorizing the league on the score sheet and and certainly on the ice. And he was just, he was a handful while he was out there. He took no prisoners, you know, for a smaller guy, he played with a real, you know, a a, a real nasty edge and he, he just, he wasn't shy. And of course for, you know, for guys like myself, we had to, we had to be ever mindful that, you know, Theo might be, you know, inches from, or, or just a, you know, another high sticking infraction or, or something from from kind of setting off uh, setting off World War One on the ice. So
3: <laughs> we we were
2: always pretty mindful of the way uh, of the way the game was going when when we played for Theo. And I'll tell you, you know, in, just in terms of your first question, the guys that used to give me as, you know, in terms of that enforcer type role, the guys that used to give me the greatest challenge, I'll just I'll put all the left handers in the same category. Guys like George Larock, guys like Dave Brown uh, for whatever reason, and a lot of right-handed, dominant right-handed guys will tell you, lefties are a challenge to fight. And that was certainly true of of guys like George and and Big Dave. I'm very fond of saying I'd probably still be playing today were it not for lefties.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of guys might be able to say that, Stu. Hey, <laughs> hey, look, um, we're in a different time now. And uh, I've got to say, with the job you had, I'm glad you got out uh, you know, with your act together. I mean, it might not have been together when you got out, but you've moved along. But one of the things from that era that's changed so much today, well, a couple things. First, that enforcer role is all but eliminated from the game as we know it today. Yes, there are fights, but you got to be able to play some minutes behind it. But the other thing now is how well uh, the league, at least it's better than it used to be, looks at concussions, uh, looks at the issues that come with a blood sport, a contact sport. You talked about having maybe approaching 400 fights before you were even diagnosed with your first concussion. Uh, Man, that was a different time. I don't know how many you had, but Are we where we need to be now in terms of looking after players? I know they sign off when they take the money. They know what can happen. But are we doing enough to make sure that life after hockey is going to be okay for them?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think there are probably three separate tracks at a minimum where you need to address a question like that. One is the science, the medicine, and that will continue to evolve over time. So that we, one, I think, are in a better position to to identify, then diagnose, and treat uh, the symptoms of head trauma. Mm-hmm. So, to me, that's that's not something that the the league, the player, or anybody associated with the sport can really um, you know attend to or advance. That's just something that we leave the docs and the professionals. To, to resolve over time. Where the game is concerned, um, I, I think the, the, uh, the powers that be, both the Department of Player Safety, the, the competition committee within the NHL, and then certainly the associated uh, professional and, and minor leagues, I, I think some appropriate measures have been taken over time to make this game uh, safer, uh, perhaps as safe as it can be. So I, I like the way things have kind of evolved along. Let's just call that the you know the the policy track or the league track.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: the The one area, and this is in part one of the reasons I wrote the book, uh, the one area where I think the the game can certainly improve, and this goes to players and anybody that would have contact with a player who may have suffered head trauma during the course of competition, I, I think the culture needs to change and, and can change uh, for the betterment of of all players. Players need to be in an environment where they feel free and are quicker to self-report if they've suffered head trauma. Because let's be clear, it's not always identifiable. It's not always easy to spot when a player has suffered had trauma and may be suffering symptoms. So to the extent that, and you know, where I can, I like to make a contribution in this area to advance the culture. Perhaps the book will do that in part. There are very, very serious consequences for the player that doesn't self-report that keeps those symptoms to himself. Um, That, that for me remains the one kind of area of focus I think, guys, at the end of the day, just this this whole notion of uh, can we create a a safer environment, maybe a a freer environment within which the the player having suffered head trauma can come forward and disclose his symptoms.
0: Stu, it might be a personal question, but I'm only asking because I do give a shit, and that is have you been checked out?
2: Oh, I have. I'm part of um, the—I always get this wrong. It's the Baycrest— Institute is performing a study of former players who suffered head trauma over the course of their career. Uh, I was up there several years ago for my initial visit to the Baycrest study, and then Baycrest is great about having us. They want to follow up with us every three or four years or so to see how we're evolving, and I'm, I'm happy to share with you that in terms of where I was just my my first test post uh you know post hockey uh several years ago I I'm I'm doing I'm doing quite well just from a cognitive a neurocognitive point of view I'm doing quite well and and really I don't I don't suffer any uh anything in the way of you know lingering symptoms today where where head trauma is concerned so happy to report I am pretty much intact
1: that's that's good to hear Stu um I have a a, a question, too, and it gets debated in bars right across the land, although I think uh, we're seeing fighting eliminated from the game just over time. But there was an era when uh, concussion protocol would be a trainer holding up his hand and saying, how many fingers? And if you could count them, uh, you were good to go. We know that's not good enough. We know we need to look at it more deeply. Given what we know now, Stu, and the information we have at hand, uh, in contrast with the culture of hockey and the tradition of hockey, at the NHL level, do we still need or is there a place for fighting in the game when we know it can cause concussions, not that it causes most of them, but that it causes any of them. Is it a fair question to ask?
2: Yeah, I, I think it is a fair question to ask. Uh, here's my one kind of source of resistance to that, that whole kind of um, that topic with, within the sport. Uh, I hear lots of folks. I hear even managers. I certainly hear fans. I hear, Many many members of the media who would take this point of view that we need to outlaw fighting mm-hmm. simply because there is this risk, and as you mentioned, I don't know if you kind of referenced it or specified. Uh, really, less than ten percent of the concussions occurring in the game today occur uh, come come about as a result of two men, you know, in, engaged in a fight. Right. So it is a smaller aspect. But but the the broader point that I'm making is I'm somewhat resistant to this whole point, knowing that overwhelmingly, every time the players have been pulled, and they've been pulled by their union in many, many different contexts at many, many different times, Mm -hmm. overwhelmingly, the players continue to believe there is a role for fighting in the game today. And I believe it comes from this point of view. The players like it because it means they like that fighting exists because it means accountability. Players can be held accountable for their actions by other players. And here's the reason I continue to think that it remains, it should remain, an important part of our game. There's nothing more exciting to me than that moment of the game. If my team is trailing, I go out, I get into a scrape with somebody on the other side, it creates a a source of excitement and becomes a momentum turning point within that game. And I've sat in the penalty box on the other side of the ice and I've seen it more times than not three times out of four. I engage in a situation like that. My team will respond. The bench senses it. The coaching staff senses it. Every fan in the building senses it. And it's a really, really unique moment. And I think actually sets us apart from the other sports, just in terms of how electrifying a moment like that can be. So, for all those reasons, I continue to believe that uh, that there remains a place for fighting in the game today, and I suppose the, the, the important point I'm trying to make in all that is, you know, when we consult the players, and that probably should be the group we consult first yes. about how their sport is going to be played, they ought to have a say in it, and the players continue to feel very, very strongly about um, about retaining and not outlawing uh, fighting majors within the NHL, within the pro ranks.
0: Hey, this has been fantastic. Before we let you go, though, because you've written a book, do you have one story in that book that still makes you laugh or makes you <laughs> shake your head? Because you got to ask guys when they write a book that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are putting me on the spot. There are many, many like that. I'll, t- I'll tell you a quick one, though. Uh, Jeremy Roenick was, a, was a, a wonderful character. We called him JR. Superstar, and he was like one of these kids where he was so brash, so cocky, so confident. He used to just make your eyes roll every time he opened his mouth. But one night we're playing, the first year that the Tampa Bay Lightning were in the league, me and my Chicago Blackhawks were playing Tampa and we're having our way with them uh, in Chicago Stadium. It was about a three- or a four-goal spread late in the game. And Daryl Sutter, my coach back then, Goes even want to run up the score. We had just received a power play. We were going on a, on a power play against Tampa late in the game, and Darrell throws me out there, and I mean, it was the first time I've ever actually been on the power play in the NHL. And uh, so I skate up. Jr. skates up to me at the faceoff, and he goes, "Stu, here's what I want you to do. When I win the draw, I'm taking the puck behind the net. I'm going to move down the left side." And once I get deep down the left side, I want you to hang back in a high slot. I'm going to throw you a pass. And once I throw you that pass, just put it on net. And I'm like, again, with the eyes rolled back in head, okay, JR. Well, <laughs> sure enough, puck drops. The kid wins the draw. The kid takes it behind the net. The kid starts working his way down the left-wing side, just like he said he was going to. So I say to myself, well, gosh, if it's going to come together in exactly the way he does, I guess I better play my part in all this. I skate up, I hang back in the high slot, and sure enough, the kid gets it to me, and I banged it through Darren Poopa's legs and scored my only ever power play goal in the NHL. <laughs> Beauty. I tell you what, if you go back and you look at the YouTube clip of that whole moment, I mean, I was as dumbfounded as bewildered as anybody in the building. So it was a, uh, it was, it was a fun moment, a cool moment, but that's more a JR story than it is a Stu Grimson story. At the end of the day, I think.
1: That's terrific. <laughs> Stu, uh, before you go, where can people uh, get the book, uh, either uh, you know, hard copy in the store or online? How do they get a hold of it?
2: Any chapters, Indigo ought to have it, and Amazon.ca or Amazon.com. That's the best way to get your mitts on The Grim Reaper, the life and career of a reluctant
0: warrior. And lastly, because you mentioned Theo Fleury, who's a friend of both of ours here. I was looking at your numbers from Salt Lake City. The first season you were there, 268 penalty minutes. The second season, 397 penalty minutes, and the fourth or the third season rather was 319 penalty minutes. I'm guessing the Theo years were those first two.
2: Yeah, they certainly were. They certainly were. No question about it. You know, folks, folks are often quick to remark about, "Oh wow, Stu, you played 14 years. You had 2100 penalty minutes in the NHL. I did. I did that over 14 years. Would you believe? And as you reference, if you went back and you kind of pieced it all together, the three years, the three years that I spent playing in the IHL when my dance card was full every night, I had the equivalent of just over a thousand penalty minutes in just three years. <laughs> that was a, a busy, busy, hard way to make a living. Sure oh, we,
0: we know Theo will be retweeting this. Uh, thanks for your time. <laughs> Good luck with the book. And, and maybe we can catch up with you again during the middle of the season sometime. Fantastic. It's been my absolute pleasure, gentlemen. Thanks, Stu. Pro-Am Sports is Edmonton's home for sports and entertainment memorabilia. Featuring unique collectibles and apparel, we've got you and your fan cave covered. Pro-Am Sports, located in Edmonton at 12728 St. Albert Trail and proamsports.ca. Okay, so you're on the beach in Zanzibar. Explain to everybody where yep. Zanzibar is.
4: Zanzibar is a, I don't want to say little island, but it's an island just off the coast of uh, Tanzania, and it's kind of the uh, resort Um portion of tanzania if you will uh because it's on the what i guess this would be the indian ocean and uh it's an island with all kinds of different resorts ranging in price from very affordable to high end and i'm at the very affordable bracket (laughs) um so it's a little getaway spot essentially and it's uh absolutely beautiful beaches uh sprawling beaches and but the the surprising thing is here is that the tide goes out, and it goes out like 500 meters. Um, you can walk at less than knee depth for about 500 meters, and then you hit a, a reef point. So that's where Zanzibar is.
1: Well, Corey, you certainly earned the R and R. Let's talk about uh, the climb of Mount Kilimanjaro. You were sending photos. Uh, clearly, it was a lot warmer at the. Base than it was at the top when you were standing triumphantly uh, at the sign with snow everywhere. But uh, that's a that was a that was a uh, a tough task, wasn't it?
4: Uh, that's an understatement, Robin. Um, starting out at the first gate, uh, I think we were at about elevation about six thousand feet, and um, so no altitude problems there. But you start off in a rainforest, and it's a rainforest so you're getting wet and you know your first night you get your tent set up and whatnot and you're going in you're wet and so you know I haven't camped in quite a few years and I was camping now for five and a half nights so it was a bit of a an awakening as far as that goes but then you go from one um one what do you call it uh I'm at a lack of words here but geographical like you go from different weather points or not weather points pardon me but you know you go from a rainforest to desert to it looks like you're on the moon next and then you're at altitude and now it's like you know alpine stuff and then the next thing you know you're on top of the world um so it's it's a very diverse uh ecosystem i guess is what i'm looking for
0: yeah that's exactly (laughs) it Okay, so now let's uh, let's go back to the rainforest and work our way up up the mountain here. Yep. So it's all wet, and we expect that in a yep. rainforest. But now you got to find a way to dry out because you've got a long way to go, right?
4: Yeah, uh, yeah. and there, ain- there is no way to dry out. I mean, you got your stuff in your tent, and you do the best you can to dry out. But you know, you basically you've got wet, stinky clothes for six days, and you know, obviously you have some extra stuff packed and whatnot. Um, but that was the challenging part was, you know, literally trying to stay warm at nighttime and stay dry throughout the day. Um, and so it, it led to some obstacles. There's no question. Definitely out of my comfort zone as far as that goes, but you know, there was a mission at hand and that was to make it to the top. And it wasn't about me. It was about, uh, raising some money and some awareness for the mustard seed. And that was literally in the back of my mind all the time. Whenever I had a, a slight uh, getting down on myself or, you know, just just uh, having the blues or whatnot. I was just like, hey, this isn't about you, buddy. It's about raising some money for the less fortunate, and those guys go through hardships every day, so I can tough it out for six.
1: You know, it, it was it's such a wonderful cause, and, and you know, full disclosure, Corey, uh, some of our listeners won't know, I'm involved with the mustard seed, so uh, we are thrilled beyond words that you took this on uh, to help raise money uh, for those struggling with poverty and homelessness in the city. Um, how do you draw on that, though? Like, during the ascent, uh, one question, what was the most difficult part of the ascent, and uh, where did you put your mind to make sure you slogged through that? Uh
4: the- The most difficult part was the summit day. Uh, summit day starts for us at midnight. Um, we had, and I had already hiked that day. I'd already hiked about five hours up the mountain. We got to a base camp, I think around noon or 1 p.m. We had a a lunch and then, uh, go to bed for, you know, I was actually, no, that was closer to, pardon me, that was closer to 5 p.m. because I was in bed about 5 p.m midnight and then i got awoken from a, a very deep slumber and uh, my heart was racing uh when i got woken up at midnight because i knew what was at hand it's like okay this is this is the summit point and um we had a a light uh, breakfast if you will at midnight and then by 1 p.m 1, a, 1 a.m pardon me we were starting to ascend to the summit and uh it was cold it was like a um, bit of a blizzard sort of scenario. And I made the fatal mistake of, uh, I had great layers and whatnot, but I didn't have a proper shell. And so I had used a, a really good raincoat as my shell, which was great. It kept all the snow and whatnot out, but it trapped all the heat in. And one of my layers started, to, I was soaked basically on yeah. my third layer. And I was a little concerned about getting hypothermia because it was probably only about minus 10, but the wind was blowing. And we'd stop roughly every thirty minutes for a little water break. Um and you are literally moving at a snail pace. Like it's I believe the summit from base camp to your Uhuru, if I pronounce it correctly, to the the top of the mountain is roughly five kilometers. And we did it in six and a half hours, which is a good time. It's not a and it's not a race, but it's a reasonable time. I talked to some other people who summited it as well and they were in and around that time. Um but it's, you know, you're, you're battling conditions that day anyways. We were definitely battling conditions and you're moving at a snail's pace and every step you're laboring with, with your breath, um, because of the altitude. And that was one thing I was concerned about is because it's nothing you can really train for. Um, some people's bodies just can't adapt to it. And I saw, you know, easily a dozen people on that hike who were, who were starting to descend. They couldn't make it because they were getting altitude sickness. And, and it's a scary thing, you know. Um, and then it's, it's in the back of your head. But literally, there was—I uh, had several conversations going on in my mind where I was telling myself, like, "Hey, buddy, suck it up. It's not about you. It's about these people." Yeah. The uh, and, and I just don't, I kept on through
0: Corey, one one of the things, and I've talked to a few people who have been able to climb Mount Everest, and that's obviously a, a, a monster event. But yes. they've also climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, and I said, okay, so what's the difference? They said there's a few things. One, because it's in Africa, people might underestimate the, the mountain because uh, yep. they, they think of Africa as being a warm, arid kind of place. Yet you have to, as you pointed out, go through various ecosystems. Now, when you're traveling yep. up that mountain with members of your team, are there some people that have climbed other mountains as well and found this a completely different type of challenge yet just as challenging?
4: Uh, it's a good question. I don't have a, a the perfect answer for it. So I was on my own. I had my own team in terms of I had my guide, my chef, and there was literally seven or eight porters mm-hmm. with my team. Um, there was lots of other people climbing uh, in and around me, but I didn't really have a lot of interaction with these people because. You know, you get to camp, it's raining, you eat. I eat in the tent with my, uh, with my, uh, my team, my porters and, and chef and guide. And then I went to my tent and I'd read and I'd go to bed. So I didn't have a lot of interaction with, with other hikers, unfortunately, and it was due to weather and, and whatnot. So I don't, I don't have a good answer for you as far as that goes. Um, but I do know, you know, I've, I've had some friends who've hiked, uh, to, uh, base camp in, uh, Everest and, um, and, you know, it, it, I think it's just a whole other animal, so it's, it's hard to compare the two other than the fact that, like what you said, you know, people, inexperienced people like myself, you think, oh, Africa, it's Todd, it's this, it's that. But when you get to that mountain, it's a whole, it's an entirely ecosystem upon itself. And I mean, the one thing to consider too is that Kilimanjaro is a free-standing mountain whereas all the other big mountains and whatnot that are conquered throughout the world are in mountain ranges. Yep. And this is just a, a dormant volcano that stands upon its own. So it's a, it's, a, it's a animal unto itself.
1: Well, Corey, I loved seeing that picture that you sent. Now, how long to make the ascent, how long to make the descent, and how long did you actually stand at the top of the mountain? Because I, I'm guessing... There was a lot more hours spent getting up and getting down than there were standing at the top, taking a photo.
4: Oh, absolutely. That's an understatement, Robin. Um, we rounded the corner and my guide said, we're here. And I could see the sign in the distance is probably 300 meters away, even though it was, you know, snowing quite uh, heavily. And I let out a primal yell. Uh, I was, I was so jacked at that point. Uh, the fatigue was instantly gone. I obviously had a shot of adrenaline as soon as he said that. And I said to him, I said, you know, I think I had a couple of tears of joy for that, for that uh, matter too. But I said, I said to him, I said, listen, we're not there until I touched that sign. So we got to the sign and there was uh, probably 20 people ahead of us doing their picture thing. And um, so literally I was probably only at the summit. Well, in total 15 minutes. Um, and I was, you know, I, we did our pictures within about 60 seconds because I had there was some lady beacon about, you know, taking time and whatnot. And I, I politely, in the, the best Canadian way I could, told her that um, that I was going to take my minute of uh, of fame or whatever you want to call it and get my appropriate picture and for her to just kind of quiet down a bit. So, um, so hang on, so like I say,
1: You're yeah. saying you <laughs> scale Mount Kilimanjaro... And there's some woman at the top telling you to get your ass in gear because what she wants her turn in front of the sign or what?
4: Yeah, absolutely that's exactly what it was. what was funny is there was the lady that the family that was before me taking pictures. they were up there for five minutes, like they were getting every pose impossible <laughs> and I was doing the I was doing the polite Canadian thing and I was trying to I'm like, you know, get my mustard seed sign up and then my my guide wanted to get his sign up and And she's beacon in the background and I'm, you know, I wanted to say a lot of things, but I'm just like, I didn't. So I I kept it uh, pretty PG for that effect. But um, once we hit the summit, then we came down. It was probably, probably two hours to descend to base camp. And then we had lunch. I wanted to go to bed. I was exhausted. I had hiked, you know, 12 hours in the last 24 hours. And uh, I wanted to go to bed. And my guy's like, yeah, no sleeping. He goes, we'll have a light lunch. And then we're going to hike another four hours down to the next <laughs> camp. So so that was what, six, two, eight? That was a 13, 14 hour hike day um, to the next camp. And then we overnighted. And that was the best sleep I had in that whole week and uh, had a big meal. And then the next day we hiked down to the last gate. And that was
0: it. Hey, was this your first trip to Africa? And if it was, what was the big surprise for you there?
4: Uh, it it wasn't technically my first trip to Africa. I lived in Algeria when I was a little boy. My dad uh, was an electrician on oil rigs many, many years ago. So I lived in Oran, Algeria in the very early 70s. I have no recollection of anything. Yeah. So technically it wasn't my first trip, but yes, it, it basically was. And um, uh, overall impressions, I mean... I have a lot of respect for the people in Kenya and Tanzania, you know, there it's, it gives you a whole different appreciation for what we have back in Canada, you know, and, uh, these are very hardworking people that work for, you know, next to nothing for peanuts. Um, the biggest, one of the biggest takeaways I had from this whole trip guys was the porters who hike your uh, gear and the tents and the food up the mountain. They are, they're allowed to carry a maximum of forty-four pounds. They're weighed in at the gate by park rangers, um, and I think pretty much all of them are maxed out at about forty-four pounds. So, and I I would guesstimate most of these guys don't weigh more than one hundred and fifty pounds, and they're they're hiking forty pounds, forty plus pounds up the mountain every day, and they they set up camp, they break down camp, they set up camp, they break down camp, and they do that for however many days are on the mountain. And I had the and they get paid about ten bucks a day U.S. So it's, uh, that was pretty humbling, and I have the uh, yeah, utmost respect for those guys. So it would be completely impossible to do it without them.
1: Wow. Now, Corey, you paid all your own costs for this. I uh, want to make that clear. You've talked about the mustard seed. Now, you went hoping to raise uh, about $10,000. Can you tell us about the response to this point and also mention, if you could, uh, where people can donate, uh, if they would still like to do that,
4: absolutely. And thanks for bringing that up. Um, response has been pretty good. Um, I, you know, this is one of the first fundraisers I've done in a very long time, so I'll take some responsibility for that. I think we're sitting at. I just got an update. We're sitting at seven thousand dollars, and the goal was to raise ten. Mm-hmm. I know I still got some uh, some donors to come in. And if any of your listeners would love to donate, that would be greatly appreciated. They can go to the theseed.ca, and that'll be asked a couple questions, which city they should click on Edmonton. And then there's also a category where they ask why, you, why you're donating. And if they would uh, type hashtag hike for hope, then everything will go under my banner in terms of fundraising mm-hmm. so they can keep totals. And as you mentioned, um, yeah, I funded 100% of my own trip. Um, so all the donations uh, received will will go directly to the mustard seed and the mustard seed embassy.
0: I think you should get back to the beach now.
4: I, I'm still I'm rubbing my feet in the sand right now, and uh, <laughs> I've got a cold beer waiting at the table.
0: <laughs> well, you've earned it, Corey. Yeah, you've earned thanks. it. Thanks for joining us from Zanzibar today, and uh, I'm guessing you'll surpass that total once you get back and you're able to tell the story to uh, you know another group of media as well, and, and I'm sure you'll be speaking to various groups. So congratulations on everything, and thanks for being with us today.
4: Thanks very much, guys. I appreciate uh, all your support.
0: Wow, uh, that was quite the show today. Yes, it was. Stu Grimson, fantastic. And uh, Corey, job well done. Yeah,
1: Stu is a a real sharp guy who had a real interesting career. Um, I'm glad to see him doing well. Uh, Hope he has all kinds of success with the book. Again, it wasn't a traditional line he took to that now almost extinct role of enforcer in the National Hockey League. But uh, he's got stories to tell. As for Corey Clendenning, what a feat. Bucket list stuff for a lot of people. He's back. Uh, I'm glad he had success in it. You know what? I forgot to ask him. We'll ask him next time. What's next? Because there's always oh, yeah. another mountain to climb, so to speak, for these guys. <laughs> but a tremendous story.
0: I will say I'm not a big fan of knowing the answer to a question I'm going to ask. Now, I know lawyers have to do that. I don't like doing that. I like to ask questions that I'm interested in, that, uh, that, that my level of inquisitivity is high. Is there such a word as inquisitivity? No, there's not. Well, I just on. made it up. I just did a Danny Gallivan there. Anyway, uh, where Danny used to make up words like cannonading and uh, spinoramas. Anyway, uh, when I was looking at his numbers a couple of days ago, I saw those three those three seasons in Salt Lake City, and I went, gee, Theo was there those three years. And I thought to myself, I got to ask that question because uh, I'm sure that uh, Theron kept him very busy in Salt Lake City. So anyway, it was a fantastic show today. If you'd like to get a hold of us, maybe – you'd like us to kind of track down somebody uh, or you just want to give us a little feedback on the show, just email us at mightymouth at Shaw And thank you for all of your feedback so far. And don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. It's growing every week. We love that subscribe or hit the RSS feed to uh, whichever your provider is. It might be Google podcasts or it might uh, be Apple podcasts or Spotify. There's a lot of them out there. You'll find us. It's no, no big deal. Are we done? Is that it? Episode 10 is in the books. And it was fun today. Thanks, Robin. See ya.
3: proceeding was recorded earlier because we were ashamed to do it now.